Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. <clears throat> they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit upon him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. We're now going to read the remaining part of Mark chapter 10. They came to Jericho as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. 
Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in case you hadn't noticed, today is International Women's Day. Uh, I saw on the, uh, on the news that some of the roundels uh, on, I think it's the Victoria Line, are being replaced for International Women's Day, but I, I haven't been on the Victoria Line. Has anybody seen these yet or not? Maybe we'll have to make a special trip later to see if we can see them. A um, little bit about International Women's Day. For more than a century, people around the world have been marking the 8th of March as a special day for women. When Helen and I were praying before the service, Helen prayed a prayer of thanks that International Women's Day exists, but also recognising that it's something that shouldn't have to exist. And I think that's, that's a really important tension to hold as we go through uh, our thoughts in the next few minutes. The, the idea came out of the, the labour movement and uh, became a United Nations recognised annual event. So it started in about 1908, 15,000 women marched through New York City demanding shorter working hours, better pay, and the right to vote. Well, women do have the right to vote. Shorter working hours, better pay. The Socialist Party of America declared the first National Women's Day a year later, and this year's International Women's Day has as its theme an equal world is an enabled world. And it asks for people to work together to create a gender equal society and world. And this theme of enabling, you know, an equal world is an enabled world. This theme of enabling is something that we've encountered again and again on our journey through Mark's Gospel. As Jesus consistently challenges and removes the barriers to social inclusion that hold the vulnerable or the weak or the marginalized in positions of exclusion. So we've seen Jesus casting out spirits of uncleanness and declaring women acceptable and equal removing the stigma of poor mental health and welcoming, as we saw last week, the most powerless in society to the very centre of his circle. And as Mark tells us these stories, he does so not just to educate his readers about the life of Jesus, but because he wants those of us who follow Jesus to create new communities where these values are made real. So to help his readers realise what kind of disciples they are to be, Mark offers us the disciples gathered around Jesus as a kind of object lesson in how to get it badly wrong. We saw this last week with uh, the disciples arguing about which of them was to be the greatest. And we meet it again this week in the story of James and John vying for their positions of power. The key issue in our reading from today is one of leadership, of what kind of a person should be a leader within the group of Jesus' disciples. Now, I 
must confess, I have a certain level of vested interest in this question. After all, for the past 20 plus years, in various capacities, eight of them so far here at Bloomsbury, I have been involved in the task of leadership within Christian congregations. I was talking about this with my spiritual director this week, and he asked me how I would describe myself and my role, and my answer was clear. I am a minister. I'm not an academic, although I have some academic skills that I use in the task of ministry. I'm not a musician, although I have some musical skills that I sometimes bring to the task of ministry. I'm not even, by definition, a pastor, although I do a lot of pastoral work. I'm a minister. And the key thing for me here is that the word minister comes from the Latin word for servant. The leadership that I offer at Bloomsbury and within the wider Christian world is, or at least should be, a leadership that is grounded in the serving of others. Christian leadership should not be founded on status or domination or power. And yes, I know sometimes I need to remind myself of these things. And I can think of other ministers out there who might need reminding too. Not just church ministers, of course, but those servants of the people who serve as ministers in government. So what kind of a person should be a leader within the community of Jesus' disciples? Seeing as today is International Women's Day, I need to note that for many centuries, and indeed still in many churches today, the prime criteria for Christian leadership is that you need to be a man. Even in these enlightened times and within our own Baptist family, ordained ministry is still overwhelmingly male. And within many churches, there remains strong resistance to women preaching or serving in roles such as deacon or elder. In the church where I grew up, I never heard a woman preach. In the church where I first served in ministry, not only did we not have women preaching at, when I first went there, but there was a resistance to having women serving on the eldership. And I could tell you of many other churches where this is still the case. And yet, I could point out to you a woman called Dorothy. Her name was Dorothy Hazard. She is recognised as a pioneer church planter. She started Broadmead Baptist Church in Bristol in 1640. I could point you to Anne Steele, who was a prolific Baptist hymn writer. We don't tend to sing her hymns so much these days. They, they've fallen out of favour. But her works were included in almost all hymnals, not just Baptist, but across uh, the English-speaking church context through the 18th and 19th centuries. I could point you to Hannah Marshman, who is considered to be the first Baptist woman to be a missionary. In 1799, Hannah and her family set sail for India, landing at the Dutch colony of Serampore, and within a year she had opened two boarding schools, working in education projects as part of her Christian missionary service. I could point you to Edith Gates, who became the first female minister in pastoral charge of a Baptist church in 1918 at the age of 35. I could point you to Violet Hedger, the first woman to train at a Baptist college, 
called to her first pastorate at Little Over Baptist Church in Derbyshire in 1926. I could point you to many women who serve today as ministers across our Baptist family of churches, including our General Secretary Lynn Green, my colleague Dawn here at Bloomsbury, currently on maternity leave, and of course our former minister, my former colleague Ruth Goldborn, now ministering in Manchester. And I could go on, we could talk about Barbara Stanford, we, we could name other women ministers we've known. And at Bloomsbury, we have a long and proud history of recognising and affirming the ministry of women. But still, these stories are a minority, and Bloomsbury is a minority. And part of the problem is that leadership in our world more generally is still predicated on systems that we have inherited from the ancient world which favour men. Systems which we might call patriarchy or paternalism or patronage. The world in which Jesus lived was one where leadership was pretty much exclusively male. From the emperor downwards, power in Roman society flowed through deeply entrenched systems of male privilege. Every man had a master, every master had people who were dependent on him. And your status in society was determined by how high you were born and how high you managed to climb the social pyramid of preferment. This client-patron relationship, as it was known, was called the system of patronage. And it determined most of the social and cultural infrastructure of the Roman Empire. Patronage was not just confined to the military, economic or political aspects of Roman society. It was linked with the public display of status, with social ranking, with the legal system and even the arts. And to this day, of course, you know, we still use this word, don't we? To a person who gives money to a theatre or a cultural project in exchange for recognition is known as a patron of the arts. That, that word has, has still come down to us. In Roman mythology, you found the story of Romulus, one of the founders of Rome, who appointed a hundred men to serve as senators in about 750 BC, so the story went. These men were known as the patricians of Rome, um, from the Roman word for father. And the idea was that Roman society should mirror the power structure of the Roman home. Whether in the house, the father was the head of the household, so in society, the patricians were the head of the family that was society. Lower-class Roman men would be clients of these upper-class patricians, and the system of patronage was born. The patrons would bestow status and power on those that served them, like a father giving special gifts to his most loyal and faithful sons. Women, children... Slaves, they were excluded from this system. They had no power and they had no way of gaining any. Possibly if a woman was widowed, she might inherit some of her husband's power. And if she was very bold, she might refrain from marrying again. But that was just about the only opportunity for a woman. So, it was something of an ideological bombshell for Jesus to say that within the community of his followers, chapter 10, verses 43 to 44, if you're following in your Bibles, 
Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. This was not the way ancient society worked at all. Certainly it wasn't the way that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, thought that it should work. So the brothers petitioned to Jesus to be allowed to sit, one on his left and one on his right hands, demonstrates that they have completely misunderstood everything that Jesus has been saying to them about why he is going to Jerusalem. As I said, Mark offers us these disciples as kind of object lessons of how to get it wrong. James and John clearly seem to think that they're going to be part of some messianic coup, a regime change, where they all march on Jerusalem and the Jews finally get back their autonomy from the Romans. And here in this story in Mark's Gospel, as the narrative is beginning to turn towards the cross, and here we are, second week in Lent, making our own journey towards Good Friday, we see them lobbying for, in effect, the positions of Chancellor of the Exchequer and Home Secretary in Jesus' new government when it comes into its power. There was, you see, then, as indeed still today, an expectation that a newly elected or appointed powerful leader would reward their most faithful followers during their campaign with positions of power when they had it to bestow. We've seen this in some of the appointments within our own government. And it was the same back then. It was the rule of client-patron obligation that loyalty paid. And it's worth while noting that this system of patronage didn't die with the Roman Empire. You can trace it as it moved over into the medieval societies of the 10th century through systems such as feudalism, and then it segued into the Middle Ages in terms of courtly power, and then it merged into the class structures of European imperial powers. It entrenched itself in our education system, and it is still with us today in the patterns of preferment that we see in government and other powerful institutions in our society. It remains as true today as it was in the first century that the best way to get money and power is to be part of a wealthy family, go to Eton and make influential friends. So, for James and John, mistakenly expecting Jesus to be the next king of Israel, the request to sit at his right hand and his left hand was a perfectly sensible, if rather self-serving, request for them to make. They wanted to be those with power and influence in the new world of Jesus' kingdom. In exasperation, Jesus throws the question back at them, using what we would recognise as sacramental language of baptism and cup. Verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? Baptism, of course harks back to the beginning of the story, where it all began. Mark's Gospel, you will remember, just pretty much begins with the baptism of Jesus. There's none of this stuff around, you know, shepherds and wise men and a birth in Bethlehem. This is taking us back to the beginning of the Gospel. 
And for Mark's readers, at least, if not for James and John in the story, the cup Jesus talks about here is anticipating the end. Mark's readers would have shared communion regularly. They would have known that the cup is the cup of the shed blood on the cross, the cup of the Last Supper. In effect, Jesus is asking them if they can truly walk the way, the path that he is going to walk. Within early Christianity, being a disciple of Jesus was often referred to as following Jesus on the way. From baptism to death. And the point here is that this is not a path towards power and glory but a path towards suffering and death. It is the way of the cross. So James and John, the gung-ho sons of thunder as they were known, of course, they say, of course, we can do anything. Anything you ask us, Jesus, we're up for that. But then Jesus points out to them that they don't really know either what they're asking for or saying yes to. And you may notice they never get an answer to their original question. Jesus dodges that one. Jesus just says that such positions of preferment are not for him to grant. But those of us who read on through the gospel will get the answer in due course. The next time in the gospel anyone is described as being on the left and right hands of Jesus, it's the criminals being crucified next to him. Dare we say, that those who are rewarded are those who die with Jesus. It doesn't, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't repudiate the idea of leadership. Jesus doesn't say there aren't going to be leaders. Rather, he insists that leadership within the community of Christians, of Jesus' followers, will not be one that is transferred or conferred through any kind of system of patronage. Leadership amongst the disciples can only belong to those who learn to follow the way, the way of suffering, the way of non-violence, those who are prepared not to dominate, but to suffer and to serve at Jesus' side. These are tough words for those of us who are leaders. They are a reminder to us that we are here to serve, to serve Jesus, to serve the community of Jesus' disciples, to serve a cause that goes way beyond our personal needs and aspirations. So please, from my bottom of my heart, don't forget to pray for your ministers and don't forget to pray for your deacons and your officers here at Bloomsbury. We are very fortunate here in this church to have a wonderful group of leaders, but they need the support of the congregation if they are to serve well. Anyway, back to Mark's story. Perhaps predictably, things start to escalate and the other disciples start to get a bit indignant. It starts to look as though the whole community of disciples around Jesus are part of this great struggle for power. So Jesus ramps up his language. 
and compares the disciples to the Roman power structures that oppress and dominate in his society, whilst telling the disciples that this is not the way it should be amongst them. He says, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so amongst you. The very powers that will kill Jesus are the Roman administrators who practice the philosophy of leadership as domination that Jesus has been so laboriously teaching against. Roman power structures demanded that the Romans lorded it over their subjects. That's how patronage worked. And those structures tyrannized the people. And like the Herods, the Jewish rulers, and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, the disciples are in danger of getting sucked into these systems of domination and ending up enacting them in their own community. Which I think raises an interesting question for us to consider of where we encounter dominating power in our society and where we encounter it within the Christian communities that we are part of. As I've said, our world runs along strikingly similar lines to the first century world. We have systems of patronage that privilege the powerful and disadvantage the weak, that predominantly hold up men and disempower women. And the temptation for the church when we create the structures that contain our religious faith is that we end up mirroring unconsciously or worse, consciously emulating those systems of power that exist in society within our own communities. So let me put it very clearly. Whenever a church excludes someone on the basis of their powerlessness or minority status, we emulate patronage. Whenever a church denies or restricts the ministry of women, or those who are LGBTQ+, or those who are black, Asian, or minority ethnic, we emulate patronage. Whenever a church prefers those who are powerful or wealthy, we emulate patronage. Whenever a church does a deal with power to gain influence in society, bishops in the House of Lords, anyone, we emulate patronage. Whenever a church justifies violence, we emulate patronage. It is not for nothing that we have a peace candle lit every Sunday to remind us that the path of Jesus is the path of non-violent resistance to systems of oppression. The path of Christ is a path of peace, a path of inclusion, a path of service, a path of putting others ahead of ourselves. And Jesus identifies himself as the embodiment of the way of non-violence. Did you notice it? He says that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He does not come to dominate or to take the lives of others. Last week's sermon started with a quote that, despite often being attributed to Gandhi, wasn't actually said by him. However, here I'd like to share a quote that is from Gandhi. Gandhi said that the way of nonviolence will not prevail on account of words or argument, but that it shall be proved by persons living it in their lives with utter disregard to the consequences to themselves. 
I can't help but feel Gandhi understood Jesus better than his disciples did. The path to great leadership lies not in eloquence or power, but in a shared commitment to non-violently resisting the power structures that keep some down and raise others up. The path to great leadership lies in centering the marginalised, in casting out spirits of uncleanness that exclude and oppress, and in taking decisive action to restore people to right relationships with each other and with God. So let's go back to the issue of women in church life. It is International Women's Day after all. And in these thoughts that follow, I should acknowledge my debt to the wonderful commentary on Mark's Gospel by Ched Myers. Consistently, on our journey through Mark's Gospel so far, we have seen Mark critiquing the systems of power that are at work in society. He's addressed political domination, patriarchy, the family system. And we should note the fact that all three of these are domination systems based on the subjugation of women by men. Mark has already argued in the Gospel, in, earlier in chapter 10, that women should have equal rights in the marriage contract when he rewrites the Pharisees' regulations on divorce. And a little bit further on, when we get to chapter 12, we will see Mark defending women against the ideology of patriarchy when he ridicules the Sadducees' arguments about lever at marriage, you know, where a woman is married and her husband dies and then the next brother has to take her and the next brother and so on. It's also noticeable that married couples are almost entirely absent from the stage of Mark's gospel. There are two minor exceptions. We meet Jairus and his wife, and we meet the illegitimate marriage of Herod to his brother's wife. Other than that, no married couples, which is astonishing in a world that privileged marriage as the context for women. Interestingly, more to the point, the women who otherwise appear in Mark's Gospel always appear without husbands. In a world where the patriarchal system considered women as second-class citizens and unmarried women as third-class citizens, this is a truly subversive narrative strategy. So why might Mark do this? Well, he seems to go out of his way to discredit the male disciples, especially, as we've seen today and last week, regarding their aspirations to leadership and power. In contrast, Jesus advocates and embodies a vocation to leadership predicated on an ideology of service. The only other characters in Mark beyond Jesus who are shown to have a vocation of service are women. From the beginning of the story where Simon's mother-in-law serves the disciples after being healed to the end of the story where women minister to Jesus and the disciples as they go up to Jerusalem. Now, we need to be very careful here not to take Mark's positive role model of women embodying servant leadership and then turn that into a model of femininity based on service to men. 
There are strands of Christianity which require a faithful woman to be obedient and subservient to men, both in home and church life, to which I would just observe that patriarchy can be very effective at turning women's emancipation against them. But, interestingly, if the word minister comes from the Latin word for service, did you know that deacon comes from the same word in Greek? And we have deacons here and ministers. Our models of leadership should be deeply rooted in the serving of others. And in Mark's gospel, it is the women who embody that form of leadership, not the men. This disparity between Mark's portrait of male and female disciples is intensified in his conclusion. The men desert Jesus at the point where their following becomes politically risky, and it's the women who stay with him to the cross and beyond, and consequently it is the women who are witnesses to the resurrection, not the men. I don't think it's too much to suggest that the model of leadership which Jesus teaches through Mark's gospel, where the leader must be the slave and servant of others, is a model which is primarily fulfilled by women, not by men. The male disciples are constantly jockeying for position, taking the patriarchal paternalistic models of patronage and emulating them in their desire for power. It's the women who serve and therefore who are the models for servant leadership. By this reading, Mark is suggesting that in a thoroughly patriarchal socio-cultural order, it's only the women who are fit for leadership. This would help explain the appearance of various independent women in the gospel who appear without reference to their husbands. It's not that Mark is rejecting the vocation of marriage any more than I think he rejects the vocation of leadership. However, he understands that the whole social system of patriarchy, which renders tyrants strong in the world and women subject in the home, must be overturned. So the first concrete step in the last as first revolution is to bring women into leadership. And in order to do that, the rigid definitions of their traditional social roles as wives and childbearers must itself be undermined. So what about us? In our world, we have more nuanced understandings of gender and gender roles. We must avoid any form of narrative of womanhood or femininity that is transphobic or trans-exclusive. We no longer have a pattern, thankfully, in our society where women can only occupy servant roles. But Mark's challenge that the least and the last will be the first and the greatest still echoes down to our world, challenging us to notice those places where women are marginalised, oppressed and violated. And to take action to bring equality, not only by raising up the weak and the vulnerable, but by undermining the structures and patterns of leadership that perpetuate dysfunctional and abusive gender roles. Patriarchy, paternalism and patronage have no place in Christian communities. And like blind Bartimaeus, we need the gift of Christ to give us the gift of clear sight. If we are to faithfully follow the path of discipleship, where the last are the first and the first are the last.
Let's pray. Loving God, we come to you conscious it is often too easy to put prayer off in our daily lives. In this Lenten season, help us to focus on you anew and to gain fresh insights into the enormity of the sacrifice you made for us during your time on earth. Loving God, from our comfortable position in the UK, we pray for the millions wandering the earth in search of home and security. We pray for those working for peace in war-torn areas. On International Women's Day, encourage us to respect and champion the rights of women throughout the world every day. Thank you for the impact that um, fair trade has made for the justice it has brought to parts of Africa. Loving God, in our own country, we pray for the homeless. We ask that they might be directed to the services that best meet their individual needs. We pray too for those whose lives have been turned upside down as a result of flooding. Loving God, we pray for those in our congregation battling ill health, anxiety, and uncertainty about the future. We thank you for the life of Ruth and pray for those who mourn her. Remind us that you have promised that you will never leave us. We pray that individually and collectively you will use us to help make your kingdom come on earth. Amen.